ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's the sound that's the backdrop to spring. Bees buzzing around the wildflowers as they go about their duty, pollinating as they go. But an outbreak of the deadly varroa mite has been attacking the bees on the eastern seaboard. And to try and eradicate it, millions of bees have been euthanised. The effect of the outbreak on farmers and beekeepers has been devastating. That's their livelihood and not just the beekeepers, but we're also now starting to hear from the, the farmers and the agriculturalists that require the pollination of the bees for their crops. Rural Aid says the destruction of hives is affecting the mental health of people on the land. We're hearing a lot of farmers very, very distressed, particularly those who are in red zones but don't have affected hives and are seeing their bees and their livelihood being being destroyed um, because of this, this spread. Australia has been trying to eradicate varroa mite for 15 months now, but now it's decided to abandon those efforts. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country, Perth. After more than a year of battling a varroa mite outbreak on the East Coast, authorities have made the call to abandon an eradication approach and instead move towards management of the deadly bee parasite. In the 15 months since Varroa was first detected in New South Wales, around 30,000 hives have been euthanised. Prior to this, Australia had been the last continent to remain Varroa-free. In an effort to contain the spread, the Australian government has spent $132 million on a response plan. However, despite the extensive euthanisation efforts, varroa mite has continued to spread and the impact on Australia's apiary industry has been devastating. Last night, the National Management Group decided it was time to change tack. I'm joined by Port Macquarie reporter Tina Quinn, who's been covering this story. Now, Tina, just to give me an idea, has this been one of the biggest biosecurity outbreaks in Australia's agricultural history? Sinead, in terms of cost, probably not. I mean, it's the, the response plan has, I think, upwards of $132 million is what it's currently sitting at. Um, but in terms of, I guess, the, the scale of it, it's probably one of the worst since foot and mouth um, over 120 years ago. And obviously anthrax, that, that was quite a, a large biosecurity outbreak as well. Um, in terms of cost, no, uh, not as severe. But uh, yeah, in, in terms of trying to contain it, definitely, because it's, it's so difficult because, it, you know, these mites are tiny, so they're very difficult to see un- unless there's a lot of them. And bees are, are very hard to quarantine. Mm. I mean, this is, you know, they're airborne. So um, it's just, it, it's very difficult to lock down bees and to control this mite. So, you know, the, what Australia was on one tack and it continued on that tack for 15 months and now it's decided to abandon any efforts to totally eradicate Varroa. What pushed that decision? Well, the decision, they're saying that the decision was made following following reports of non-compliance when it came to hive movement and testing and that there'd been a spike in new detections across large areas. But in reality as well, there was also a really, uh, there was mounting pressure uh, from a, many in the industry that were saying that they wanted to move to a strategy of, of management. The the Kempsey outbreak, which occurred a month and a half ago now, is what really sort of I guess, set all this off, set these plans into motion because 
Varroa mite obviously reached our shores nearly 16 months ago in the port of Newcastle. And since then, there have been outbreaks uh, within the Hunter and the Mid-North Coast regions, but they had been contained. 14, 15 months after that, when the, the Kempsey outbreak occurred, that was really what changed everything because hives from that region as well were, were sent over uh, to the Sunraysia and Riverina areas where there was uh, where they were um, being sent um, for, for the pollination industry like almonds and such yeah. uh, to pollinate those crops over there. So all of a sudden you had these hives that had been infected with the mite unwittingly being transported across New South Wales. And I, I guess the other reason as well is, um, the other factor as well is, is that in Kempsey, um, nobody knew actually how long it had been within that region for. So it was just sort of spreading unwittingly uh, for all these weeks. And all these cases and detections just kept popping up. It just seemed like the horse had, you know, well and truly bolted from the stable. So I'd imagine beekeepers, particularly those who've had to eradicate their hives, they've, they've lost a lot of money in all of this. Mm. Uh, you know, what are they saying about the way Australia has managed this and, and what it'll mean to their livelihoods going forward? Well, I mean, this is where it's, it gets really tricky as well because obviously this has been going on for, for nearly 16 months and there's many beekeepers who's, who have had to completely euthanize their hives and have had their stocks and their, their bees completely obliterated. And to that, you know, there's already a number of beekeepers that have said, well, we have to leave the industry now. That's that's it for us. You know, it takes years and money to rebuild uh, what we had before. Um, so I think they're going to be feeling very frustrated. Um, there's a lot of other beekeepers that uh, were getting ready to, to have to euthanize their, their last remaining hives, who I'm I'm sure will be quite happy with this, that they, they'll still have something left to sort of carry on with. Um, but I guess the other... Thing to note here is the compensation issue. You know, beekeepers were compensated for the hives that they had to destroy, their, their hives lost. But there wasn't any, there's no compensation plan in place, uh, or there, there, there hasn't been any compensation plan in place to supplement their income over the next number of years. And that was where the financial damage was really being done. I spoke with the Australian Honeybee Industry Council uh, this morning and they had said that there is um, a, a sort of recovery package um, that is being discussed uh, for beekeepers around, I guess, a, you know, a, a large sum of payment which will help to uh, remunerate them for their losses or their, their projected losses over the next number of years. I meant to ask you, does the varroa mite affect native bees or is it just European bees? Not in a significant way. Um, so it's really the European honeybee that's, that's largely affected by varroa mite. And, and what is the effect it has on the bee? Well, it really sort of cripples and deforms them. So it makes it difficult for them to come out of uh, their... their um, it makes it difficult for them to come out of their, their cell. Uh, it, it makes it difficult for them to pollinate. And it, it can wipe out entire bee colonies because it, makes them, it deforms them and makes them very unwell. Goodness, it's dreadful to think about. And, and given that we've gone with it, there's this new way of managing it, are we likely to see Varroa spread to the rest of the country? Because at the moment, it's on the eastern seaboard. 
Yeah, so I, I again, I, I also put that to uh, the Australian Honeybee Industry Council this morning. And, you know, because up till now, there's been border restrictions in place uh, to the for, for New South Wales to the rest of Australia. So um, hives from, from the state of New South Wales can't move into... Um, hives from the rest of, I'm sorry, hives from New South Wales can't really cross the border at all. Um, but it will be, it, it, it'll be up to those individual states to to really determine their biosecurity, the, the biosecurity risk there, and whether they'll be whether they'll allow hives to to cross state borders. Really, Tina Quinn in Port Macquarie. Thanks for bringing us up to date on Australia Wide. Pleasure. Thanks, Sinead. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. Youth crime has dominated headlines around the country for years, with many advocates calling for grassroots solutions to tackle the problem. On Queensland Sunshine Coast, a councillor says youth centres could help break the cycle, and he's putting his words into action, setting up a free facility to keep kids out of trouble. Jessica Ross went along to check it out. Walking into Leon Stensholm's new youth centre, a few things stand out. There's the sprawling gym area with flashy new equipment, the half-basketball court surrounded by dazzling artwork. Several large posters of Arnold Schwarzenegger in his bodybuilding prime adorn the walls and under Arnie's and Leon's watchful eye, dozens of energetic teenagers are running around playing, laughing and connecting. Leon is a licensed counsellor who's also a competitive natural bodybuilder, hence the love for Schwarzenegger. But these days he's more focused on shaping the lives of local kids. This has been a dream and a passion of mine, working with youth. I've been working with youth now for a good part of around four to five years and I've seen there's a hole in the gap. I find there's there's a lot of help, there's psychology, there's counselling, but I feel there's nowhere for these kids to go and hang out and just be themselves. I felt the Sunshine Coast needed a place where the kids can feel safe, non-judged and a place where they can reconnect. So in here you'll find kids are running around, they're playing, and you know what, not one of them have their phone in their hand. As a father of a teenager, he knows the challenges parents face. The parents have a tough job. There, there is no denying that. So in here I can kind of even play help the parents out by actually, you know, educating the kids, training the kids. But they'll listen to me because I'm kind of like that cool non-parent mentor type person, whereas when kids gain the respect of someone, they generally got to listen. And the last thing I tell kids when they walk out the door is, be kind to your parents. How has the relationship changed for you with your family since coming here? Um, it's a much healthier, happier relationship between me and my whole family, so it's, it's very good. Molly Brown is one of more than 650 children who have visited the Free Youth Centre since it opened in July. Coming here, it's my, my mental space has changed completely um, and I'm much happier and enjoy life much more. The 16-year-old likes using the gym equipment and she's also gaining friends. Lifelong, lifelong friends that I've made here. It's really good. Parents are pitching in to help Leon supervise the kids. Courtney Rose has seen a huge change in her 12-year-old son. He's come out of his shell and he's uh, found that he's able to speak to people more openly and freely, um, whereas before he used to be quite closed off. The first day he came down, he was playing with 16-year-olds basketball and they just welcomed him straight away and he just felt comfortable straight away. And since then he's just grown more comfortable in this space. The centre also includes a pool table, mini soccer field and chill-out zone 
but there is a serious side to the fun and games. There's a lot of kids here actually in this venue right this second that actually have gone through the justice system and have actually has been a lot of trouble. I've had those kids in here that, you know, obviously have been stealing cars and causing crime and, and what I have seen is um, I've seen the change in the people. When you get these kids one-on-one, honestly, they're, they're amazing, they're incredible. Their environments and they're around people that are probably a bad influence on them, but when you get them individually on their own and break them down, you'll find there's a backstory. Everyone has a backstory and once I can actually unravel that backstory and we can tap into their emotions behind that backstory, that's the catalyst to moving forward. Early intervention's not a new concept in youth justice. Police Citizens Youth Club started in Queensland in 1948 with the aim of guiding at-risk teens away from trouble. The Queensland Government recently committed $56 million in funding towards PCYCs, but there's only one on the Sunshine Coast and 55 others dotted across the state. Leon believes more centres are needed. Back in the old days there was uh, plenty of PCYCs, there was also YMCAs, kid, places that kids could actually go and hang. They don't really exist so much anymore, so I'm trying to bring the old school back. What I do see is an envision of the next five years that there may be several of these venues of the like, whether it's myself, whether it's someone else replicating. For me personally, it's not about who builds it, it's about the fact that we need to build what's, what's required for these kids. 17-year-old Kai Parkins says the experience has been life-changing. Well, I was just misguided and um, my teacher showed me this place and I came here before it was open and it was just just gay. It was gay. I played a bit of basketball, talked to Leon. He was coaching me um, and he was just helping me find the, my way through. It's put me in a routine of working out and feeling healthy and eating healthy. Great impact on my life. Plenty of new friends that all want to help themselves and to strive to be better people. Space. What do you think you'd like to do, you know, as for work when you're older? Is, is this, is this kind of change anything in that sense? Yeah, probably social worker or something I can put back into the community and help people with. I feel like it would be great. Hearing Kai's words and seeing the changes in the other kids makes it all worthwhile for Leon. I had some very good people around me that actually backed my crazy idea and, and if we fast forward now in this few years, here we are, it's come to life. I have an abundance of volunteers. It's been long days, long nights, yeah, carrying the weight of this whole place to be honest and one, you want to make sure it works. You just, I've just put my life savings in from my back pocket into this place. But for me, it wasn't about money, it never has been. It's about the lives you can save. Everyone will find I'm always smiling, I'm always happy, I'm always joyful and I've probably got the greatest job in the world trying to save the lives of kids. It's incredible. What a whole lot of energy. That was Sunshine Coast Councillor Leon Stenson ending that story from our reporter Jessica Ross. Let's travel back in time now to some 1.3 billion years ago when a chunk of an ancient supercontinent started splitting apart. Hot rock, rich with pink diamonds, spewed through the rift in an explosion bigger than anything anyone has ever seen. The magma then cooled, locking in pink diamonds. Some of these diamonds were said to be found in streams by the indigenous people of the Kimberley region of WA, and later they were found by geologists, eventually becoming the site of the multi-billion dollar Argyle diamond mine. Now, this is all in a new study by researchers from Curtin University, and it's been published in the journal Nature Communications. 
Our reporter, Jasmine Chung, was there for the release of the report and she joins me now in the studio. Now, Jasmine, let's go back in time. Tell me about this supercontinent called Nuna. Yeah, so around two billion years ago, before the evolution of animals and plants, all the land was essentially squashed together in something called the Nuna supercontinent. This new study by researchers at Curtin University has found the breakup of this supercontinent was a crucial part to bringing the diamonds from the Argyle volcano, Argyle volca- volcano to the surface. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And there's no doubt when you're in the Kimberley, you, you can't but know that you're somewhere ancient. There's just something about that landscape. How, what do we know about how that landscape was formed and, and what had that got to do with those pink diamonds? Yeah, so around 1.8 billion years ago, two continental blocks, what we know as the Kimberley and Northern Australia, smashed together and stuck. And it's this collision that essentially turned what were probably originally colourless diamonds into pink diamonds. Uh, 90% of the world's pink diamonds have come from the Argyle mine in the Kimberley. And around 1.3 billion years ago, when the ancient supercontinent Nuna started to break apart, there was essentially all this hot lava that blasted through the split. Uh, this lava also came with the pink diamonds, which were brought to the surface. So, like you said before, when the magma cooled, the diamonds were left inside the volcano, which eventually became the multi-billion dollar Argyle diamond volcano. So, they knew that this happened, but the, what they found out is that it happened much earlier than they thought. Why did that matter? Yeah, that's exactly right. So this new research has been able to essentially redate how old Argyle is. And what they found was that it was 100 million years older than what they originally thought. It's important because this meant 1,300 years ago these diamonds were brought to the surface, which co- which coincides with the Nuna supercontinent breaking up. And even though the continent didn't actually break apart exactly where Argyle is, there was enough stretching and twisting in the land for the lava to shoot to the surface with the diamonds. So now researchers can say they've found another clue to find pink diamond deposits. So you said 1,300 years ago they came to the surface. Is that right? Yes, 1,300 years ago. So... There is a possibility there could be another Argyle out there. Yeah, well, this new research has basically revealed that pink diamond deposits could be technically found where continental blocks have collided. Researchers are definitely optimistic about the potential of finding these deposits in Australia as well, but it doesn't come without the challenges because a lot of these ancient mountain belts can be covered by sand or soil, so it can be quite difficult to actually find where these pink diamond deposits are. But scientists are definitely hopeful that in the next century there will be more deposits found to continue this global supply of pink diamonds. Now, we know this was printed in the journal today and Curtin University was involved in it, but who else was involved in this study? Rio Tinto was involved as well. So I'd say they'd be pretty happy to find another Argyle given how many multi-billion dollars of diamonds it produced. Oh, 100%. I think they're definitely looking for the next one. Jasmine Chung, thanks very much for coming into the studio and telling me all about it. Thank you. ABC Australia Wide. You've probably heard of the benefits of eucalypt oil. It smells good, it's good as a disinfectant and some say it can be good to clear your chest if you've got a nasty cough like I've had in the last fortnight. But have you heard of medicinal gums? This new crop could one day be used to treat patients with diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and long COVID. And in the northeast of Victoria, a number of farmers have planted their paddocks with plantations of these special trees that will produce high concentrates of a compound that could be used in pharmaceuticals. Annie Brown has this story. And yeah, being being the kind of the the lighter lighter paddock in on the farm 
you know, predominantly kind of buckshot country, as you can see. Mark Valletta is a farmer who isn't afraid to try new things, and he's showing me one of his latest yeah, we crops. We usually put cattle in this paddock to, so they lose weight before calving, so, so to, uh, you know, not take up uh, high-end horticulture land. It's, uh, yeah, it's a really, really exciting new venture. It, it definitely piques uh, people's interest, and they said, "Oh, medicinal gums. What, what's involved? Is, is it is it for the extraction of the oil?" And this is this is actually a compound that's in quite high concentrations called pinocimbrum, which has uh, been shown to have some really good uh, beneficial uh, medical application in Alzheimer's and dementia and anti-inflammatory and uh, antimicrobial uh, qualities. When I found out that uh, the project was had really good backing from uh, Swinburne uh, University, Melbourne University, and there was a lot of research in and around it, I, I was like, wow, this is something I'm, I'm kind of really interested in. And uh, yeah, a couple of years down the track, we're, we're standing here in the, in the trees and you know, some of them are almost 10 foot high. So Mark has 2,000 gum trees in his plantation and is one of a handful of growers around the Benalla region. The trees are grown for Australian biotech company Gretels. The chief executive officer, Alistair Cummings, said they were originally looking for compounds that could be used to replace the use of antibiotics in livestock feed. When we started this journey um, in 1978, I was at a conference uh, at Massey University in New Zealand and as one of the key lecturers at that time stood up and made a comment in front of uh, major pharmaceutical companies and representatives from around the world is that the way that we're using antibiotics and livestock feed is going to lead to a potential problem as far as resistance was concerned. So that's when the journey started. At that time I decided to meet some people from uh, University of Melbourne School of Botany, which is now Biosciences, and uh, got talking with them and is that uh, we applied for and achieved to get an ARC linkage grant. And is that uh, we started looking at uh, originally 188 different species of Australian flora. And out of that, we found one particular species which uh, is in front of us at the present stage, which is a species which has got a high content of a compound called pinocimbrin. How long, in terms of a timeline, how long before we would see a product from these medicinal gum trees available to people to try? We're looking at um, having a functional food with this compound within the next um, 18 months. Easy. Dr Jason Goodger is a senior research fellow from the University of Melbourne. He researches chemicals found in plants and he's been looking into what this compound can do. So pinosambrin is a, a pharmaceutical flavonoid that has particular advantages for diseases of the central nervous system and cardiopulmonary disorders um, and we've done with Gretel some research on that showing that it's, um, it's really effective in treating lung fibrosis for instance something a lot of people with long COVID or those who've recovered from severe COVID have a lot of scarring on their lungs and compounds like pinosembrin can, can treat that scarring really effectively. Would it be safe for humans to consume? Yeah, also well, there has been toxicity studies done on it and showing that it's a non-toxic compound. So there's 800 different species of eucalypts and there hasn't been a lot of systematic work on exactly what's in them. And so things like pinosembrin are relatively recent discoveries. So it's been known from plants in China for, um, well, the Chinese have known about it for millennia. And interestingly enough, they use plants high in pinosembrin as tea 
for elderly people. We can grow so much of it so easily compared to extracting it from the Chinese plants. But more than that, there's a whole range of these flavonoids. So it's not just pinocembrin. And they have all have different biological activities and potentially different uses. And then it's not just flavonoids. So I foresee a future where we have loads of different eucalypts and then lots of different other plants that we, we're growing for particular reasons because nature's a, an amazing pharmacy. It just grows some incredible um, compounds that can be useful in all, all manner of ways. And we just, we just don't tap into it hardly at all. Along with the growers, the company has also opened a mill in Benalla where the compound can be extracted. The support that we've got from the local community as far as growers and everything else is concerned, it's just incredible. But these people have also got a, a passion as much as I might have a passion in being able to see something which is going to be able to not only offer different farming opportunities as well, utilising land which is not really ideal for broad acre cropping or cropping or grazing on everything else, something which is going to give the local area employment as well. It's a big project, but it's got a big opportunity. It's that I always have a favourite saying, is that it's out there. All we have to do is find it. Uh, nature is the world's greatest scientist. We've been stuck on nature on today's show. Alistair Cumming, Chief Executive of Gretel's, speaking there to Annie Brown. And that's Australia-wide for this Wednesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. Listen.